I'd like to welcome you to the ministry of McCormick's Creek Church. We certainly hope that you will enjoy this selection. This particular portion of the RBD training, but I really uh, am enjoying this because it's on the family and how to rule your house well. And we're going to go with that this evening. And uh, here, let me uh, get you before you get away, brother. Uh, brother, yeah, brother, brother Sims, or one of you, I got you. Okay, all right. And uh, we're going to talk about the five love languages. Five love languages. And this is, again, speaking of marriage, and in any time that you're in leadership, you must, absolutely must have your house in order. It's more than just a spiritual thing. And let me, let, let me, let me really press that particular point. It's not like if things are not going well in your home that... Uh, you're not going to have any kind of spiritual authority whatsoever, though I do believe that enters into it. But it is people that look at you and ask you, how can you possibly teach on how a marriage should be or how to raise children when yours is in the mess they're in? Very difficult for any leader to stand and teach on that when people are questioning his or her ability to raise their own children. Very difficult. So not only, I mean, you see this in Titus, and you see this in the book of Timothy as well. And, of course, Ephesians talks about it. The book of Colossians talks about it. But it's, it's vital to understand that in leadership, you have to have your house in order. It, it's, it's a vital thing. It's what people see and also how it affects things in the spiritual. Now, I'm going to go ahead and read uh, Ephesians 5. 21 through 31. Now, I don't necessarily agree with uh, all of the translations of the Bible, but the New Living Translation is the one that I'm going to use here, and it is very good in this particular application. It's New Living Translation. She'll have it up here uh, in the King James behind me. But this is Ephesians 5, 21 through 31. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is a savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. Now, I want you to note something here, and I'm going to make this point right now. And it does say this, in everything. In the book of Colossians, it says to submit to your husbands as it is fit in the Lord. So... This is simply saying, this is, this is talking to Christian husbands and wives. This is not necessarily speaking to a Christian woman who's married to a man that is not saved, as it is fit in the Lord. There are certain things that a woman should not have to do if she has a husband that's not saved or vice versa. And that's why it says in Colossians, that is fitting, Lord, as it fits within your relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay, so that, that's vital. I've dealt with that in the past because it does say everything here, but Colossians says, as it is fitting, the Lord. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church 
He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's Word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. That is why men are selfish. The Bible says they are. It says, love your wives as you love yourself. So only men, God knows that men are, they are in love with themselves. So that's why you have to put up with men what you put up without a men. We've got a biblical right to be the selfish heathens that we are. You love that, don't you? See, I <laughs> you like that. Uh, <clears throat> I take that back. I, you know I didn't mean that, right? Okay, just to be sure. I don't like that smile on your face. It scares me a little bit. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> no one hates his own body but feeds and cares for it just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way the Christ and the church are one. So again, I say each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Okay, now that's in Ephesians 5.21 and New Living Translation. Now, I'm going to go and she's going to put this up behind me, the, uh, the five love languages. This is out of a book that was written by Gary Chapman. And um, I, I was looking at, at some of this, and it is, uh, it, it's pretty good. And I want you to, you've got to pay some attention here because this is just the language uh, of love. And, and it doesn't necessarily mean that every one of this applies. Every one of these would apply to every relationship or to every person. But it, it can mean that one, two, and a lot of times... Uh, a possible third one does apply. That's the normal. So uh, here are some of these. Uh, and again, according to the studies done on the languages of love, there appear to be five main love languages. Number one, quality time. Number two, receiving gifts. Number three, words of affirmation. Number four, physical touch. Number five is acts of service. Now, some key principles from the passage I read of Scripture, we're going to go back to that. I wanted to leave those with you, and then we're going to come back to those. But from the key principles of the passage of Scripture that I read to you, number one, wives, submit yourselves in everything to your husband. Again, I said in Colossians, this is fit in the Lord. Uh, out of reverence to the Lord Jesus. And we understand, therefore, that a man feels that, it, that he is being loved when he is respected and listened to by his wife. That's how a man feels that he is loved. He feels that he is loved when his opinion matters. So this is how a man understands what love really is. And it, 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 that's, believe me, it's applicable to every relationship. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. A sacrifice on the cross is what that's actually speaking of. And gave himself for it. Love your wife as you love your own body. So we understand, therefore, that a woman feels loved when her husband denies himself, pays attention to her needs, thereby showing that she is important and loved. A woman needs to feel important and loved. A man needs to know what, what he says matters. Does anybody agree with that? Anybody disagree with that? Do you like having your opinion listened to, Eric? And I know that Daniel doesn't. 
Daniel's one of them that thumps him with the head, you know, like that. And that's how he works with him. And then he gets thumped back. <laughs> and Jacqueline, I know that you give all that attention to your husband and you let him make every decision, correct? <laughs> she wouldn't say anything. She wouldn't make a move. Did you know, your wife's not here, so I'll leave give you a break because whatever you say, we're not going to know if it's right or not. <laughs> So we know that that's, that's how husbands and wives feel about it. Now, this is, this is all about attitude. Now, now before you, you get all bent out of shape, I'm going to use a metaphor here. Okay? So as a wife bows and submits, that's a metaphor. Okay? I knew the, And you're not even married, and I knew I was going to get a groan out of you on that one. <laughs> metaphor to her husband, thereby showing her love for him. So the husband, another metaphor hangs on the cross self denial do you, do you get do you get that part of it do you understand again it's a metaphor a, a wife is willing to bow herself metaphor to a man that's willing to hang on the cross and i think that in every relationship if that much can be understood before a couple uh, would ever say their vows to one another how much easier life would really be. Because that, that's exactly how it works. So that's how he shows his love for his wife. And it's a simple understanding of knowing your own place and it becoming a joy for you. It should be a joy for a wife to submit to her husband, and it should be a joy for a man to be willing to deny himself for his wife. Many times it is the simplicity of knowing the outcome based on your actions that brings joy. So it's knowing that if, you, if a man has denied himself, hung on the cross, and, and, the, and knowing that the, the outcome of that is a result of what he did according to the Scripture, that is in itself something that brings joy. It brings joy to me to, to know that. If I've, if I've denied myself and it makes my wife happy and it gives her what she needs, and it should be the same way with a woman uh, submitting to her husband. That's the way it should be. Now, we're going to get in now to the, to the five love languages, and I really want you to pay attention to these because this helps you to put all this together, the sacrificial part, the submission part, for a, a man to be able to gauge what his wife is thinking, for a woman to be able to gauge what her husband is thinking, and to find out what really matters to him or her. Now, when interpreting any of these five languages, love languages, your, your spouse will let you know when they no longer feel loved. If you interpret this correctly and you know what uh, your wife or your husband likes, then if you know that, you can interpret her feelings knowing when she is or isn't happy. But you have to understand which of these languages she likes to listen to. That's the vital part. Usually a person has two strong love languages and a close third. And as we go through these love languages, I want you to try to identify them in yourself, then your spouse. And if he or she is not going through this lesson with you, when you get home, go over this lesson with them and ask them what they think their love languages are. You need to identify yours. There's a few women that probably have all five of them. Okay, quality time. What is quality time? We're going to answer that. Sharing time together. Whatever, whatever it may be. Playing games, 
talking about subjects that one person enjoys, spending time in the yard, shopping, hiking, these kinds of activities are, are, are quality time. And if, you're, if your spouse's love language is quality time, you ask them what they enjoy doing and do some of those things with them. Now, this is vital. This is about them and not about you. Everybody got that? About them, not about you. Now, after you've been married 40 years, this is, I'll, I'll just tell you about us. My wife should know everything that makes me happy. And I know everything that makes her happy. You know what our problem is? I go to everything that I possibly can to make her happy, and she's doing the same thing to me, and we get lost in the middle. Anybody say, understand that? You understand that? My, wife, my, my daughter knows exactly what I'm talking about. We get lost in the middle. I do all I can to make her happy. She does all, everything she can to make me happy. And she says, what do you want to do? Well, honey, whatever you want to do. What do you, you stand there for two hours. <laughs> and nothing ever happens. Can you overdo the love language? Huh? And some of us stand out there, well, I just wish she'd ask me one time of what I would like to do. Well, that's, that's, that's part of it. But, that, that, you know, the important thing is, is that you're, you're spending time to make them feel important by looking directly at them. Do not, do not look through them. Do not look over a book at them. Do not look over a movie at them. Do, do you see what I'm saying? Your spouse is the one that you're focusing on. This is communication. Uh, I, I remember a story, and, and, and let me take this one step further. I think with, within raising children, that's the same thing about quality time. Um, you, you can't, I, I remember a story, one of our well, well-known preachers. I heard his story a few years ago. And it was about his daughter. And she told somebody this. You know, she had, you know, she had backslid. And she said, well, I could never talk to my dad without a, he had a book in his hand. He was always trying to become a better preacher. And I remember sitting in a, in a seminar one time, a preacher seminar, and having the person who was teaching it say, every time you get an opportunity, read. You, you keep a book with you when you're driving the car and you're sitting at a, at a, a stoplight. Read. I, I'm not sure that was wise, but that's what he said. And so this well-known preacher, he became a very good preacher because he believed that. But in the process of reading books all the time, he let his daughter get away. Everything must be done in moderation and in balance. Everything. And so, so quality time is just that. Whether you're spending with your wife, with your son, with your daughter, whatever it may be, you need to spend the time with them, not doing something else. The next one's receiving gifts. How many in here love to receive gifts? Just two of you? Come on, raise your hands good and high. There, oh, there we go. There we go. That's a little better. Receiving gifts. My <coughs> my daughter didn't like buying me Christmas gifts. She said everything I want costs a thousand dollars. You know, it's that's you know, I they asked me what I want, so why don't you just tell them the truth, right? <coughs> so Receiving gifts. Now, a person that communicates in this love language enjoys giving lots of gifts. You can tell when a person likes getting gifts by the amount of gifts they give. 
That's how you tell. If your wife is always giving you gifts, wake up, dum-dum. She's wanting to get something in return, right? So she's wanting you to give some gifts. So, you know, they give lots of gifts. They love the excitement and the joy that they receive in giving. This is like, uh, like giving a piece of yourself to someone else. When a person uh, is money conscious, he or she may nag at the person with this love language for buying these items, and now the person whose love language is receiving gifts feels a lack of love. In other words, if she or he buys you gifts and you nag, you shouldn't have spent the money. Then you're hurting that person. Because that's their love language. Now, on the other side of that, you can't overdo it. But it's possible to give gifts and them not be expensive. It's the idea of giving gifts that the spouse likes. It doesn't have to be expensive. It really doesn't. So if that's their love language, keep that in mind. Uh, It's just simply an expression of love. Giving uh, a gift is simply an expression of love. Words of affection. A person whose primary love language is words of affirmation is usually a very sensitive person. Now, this person may do something sweet for someone just to be able to hear the words, well done. Often this person enjoys to be complimented concerning a job they did or how they look. And if they did not get this, it is taken as a personal rebuke or lack of love. In other words, uh, they need the words of affection, affirmation. They, they, they have to have that. So they, they do things to get that. And they're looking for just simply, you did a really good job. And sometimes that's a very simple love language, but sometimes in that, that love language, that is all that is needed for an individual. I mean, can you imagine? There, I, 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 that, that one, a lot, there's a lot of women, a lot of women that have that particular need. That's a love language for them. Just a word of affection. You did a great job. You did, you know, it really looks nice. Uh, the, the dinner was great. That's a love language. And if they are giving you lots of compliments, it's probably because that's their love language and they like to have it back. So I want you to identify this. If this is any of yours, again, receiving gifts, word of affection, words of affection, quality time. If any of these, identify what is your love language. Physical touch. A person whose love language is is physical touch often lays a hand on the shoulder of their friend or pats people a lot. This person also enjoys a lot of touching from the spouse, and if they do not get it, they do not feel loved. This person enjoys leaning on his or her spouse for no apparent reason. Physical touch. You can have two and uh, possibly a third of any of these could be your love language. So this is something on this, something on this, on this uh, behalf. I, I, uh, I've always had to be careful because I'm a patter, and I'll pat people on the shoulder, or, you know, and I don't ever want anybody to think anything out of the way. But on the other side of that, I hate being touched. I, I do. I, I just I don't like it. Um, that's the reason I've always had I have a problem. If I ask you to pray for me and lay hands on me, it's a real need. I, I just don't care for it. I just don't. Um, I just I don't know. It's some kind of, and it's not because anything bad's ever happened to me. I just don't like it. 
And um, I, I, you know, but on the other side, I like giving that. I like I like to do that to affirm people that way. So in in every case, not everything that is your love language is necessarily something you like for yourself. You may do something for somebody, but you may not necessarily always like it. So I'm not saying it's not 100% when it comes to being your love language is something you do to other or for other people. Acts of service. This is my wife's love language. If she hadn't identified this one, she will. This person enjoys doing things for others. And this is a way that now, and now as far as my wife goes, I, and I can say that the same with her. Uh, I think she likes for people to do things for her, but she acts like she doesn't. Especially me. You know, she, she acts, oh, you don't have to do that, you know, and that, that kind of thing. <clears throat> you know, I, my son came over and brought Eric yesterday. And my wife, Eric, act like he's hungry. She wanted to cook him a seven-course meal. And me, I was starving to death. I didn't have nothing. <laughs> but one of the grandsons, you know, they're hungry. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? You're just wasting away nothing over there, and you don't get nothing. That's her love language. <laughs> So, the, you know, the, the acts of service, this is the way that this, this person feels loved. If they ask you to do something and your love language is, is not acts of, of service, then you may grumble and complain, but they actually enjoy doing things that please you. And this is simply showing you that their love language is acts of service, and they want you to do it out of love. They want you to do something for them out of love, not because you have to do it. It's it's important. So let's let's take this let's take this now. That was the five uh, five love languages. Now let's look at how to identify love languages in in yourself or in your spouse. Number one, does my spouse crave time with me? And how do I feel when my spouse spends time with me and doing activities that I enjoy? This language is the quality time. Is that my love language or is it my spouse's love language? Number two, does my spouse give me a lot of gifts? What is my reaction when I receive gifts? This language is receiving gifts. How does my spouse respond when you compliment them? How do you feel when good words are spoken about you? This language is words of affirmation. How does my spouse react to a touch? Does he or she move away or move towards you? How do you react to a touch? This language is physical touch. Does your spouse like to serve you often? What is your reaction when you are served in some way? This language is acts of service. Now identify. Take a minute here. This is what I just said. Identify your two primary love languages. Now think about which of these two that you enjoy the most. Now think about a third language that you almost picked as a part of your top two. And if you do this, then, then you know, here is your, here's your, this is your love language. And here's the downside. This is how you have been trying to teach your spouse to love you by loving them through your love languages. If you try to love your spouse in this way, your spouse, your opposite, will become frustrated as well as you. Because if your spouse's love language isn't the same as yours, they can become frustrated. Let me, let me at this point, let me stop just a minute. Any questions on what I've just said? 
Any questions? Hands up. Questions? Have you identified your love language? Go ahead. Can you have all five? Yeah, I believe you can. I believe you can. Uh, do I? No. At your age, you'll have all five. You'll, you'll get out of it the time you're 40. <laughs> time you hit that 40, you'll, you'll give up. <laughs> no. No, it's, you can have all five of them. But, you know, there'll be one that's specifically that you like the most, and uh, actually it can be two, and there'll be a third that you, you kind of vacillate for, and that'll be a possibility too. So there'll be a top one in you. Go ahead, Kristen. Well, now you think about, let, let's say you have, uh, you like gifts. Of course, everybody will take a gift, but that may not necessarily, uh, you know, you like getting them. So you lavish your husband with gifts. That don't do anything for him, but a pat on the back might. You see what I'm saying? That's what we're trying to do. You should be able to recognize what your spouse, yes, you should. But, you know, a lot of times trying to recognize that, you, you overdo them on what you like. You got... But men are dense, very thick-skulled, very thick-skulled. Any other questions or comments? Anybody else? Go ahead. Mm -hmm. Is that true? Do you think that men should read your minds? Wanting to know why she's mad? And he probably was out killing deer or doing something like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you need to communicate what's his love language. <laughs> well, that's what you need to figure out. <laughs> that's what, if you want him to be able to recognize yours, you need to recognize his. Anybody, somebody else? Yes. On this? Is it the same guy that had... Yeah. Oh, okay. So you can look, at, look this up. He said there's a online, and it's probably, if it's on this, let me, I forgot the author's name. Um, you might be able to type in Gary Chapman, Five Love Languages. And he said that there's a 25-question test to figure out what it is. You could probably find that out. Go ahead. Right. What did you say? Oh, okay. Do men play the dumb card? Oh, <laughs>
about right. That's not that's not bad. And do you re- do you believe this or not? Not all women are exactly like you. There is some that you have to go the opposite. You have to ask them what they like. Men have to do. It's it, it's a lot of it's all in the feminine gene. <laughs> some emotional things there. Go ahead. It's divorce, by the way. I bought the best one they had. It's only two. <laughs> Do you know, and, and you're going with that, going with that, it is true. Uh, it, she is very difficult. I, You know, buying her something that she doesn't take back and get what she wants, it just seems like a waste of time. So I figure out a better way of doing it to get her something she's going to keep. Because she likes different things, and I can't. And buying clothes, absolutely, you know, that would be, it wouldn't work. And I know that. But that's not, you know, <clears throat> my love language. There. Yep. That's his love language. My love language is poetry. Yeah, it is. Uh, poetry, I like, and I, I, you know, I write things for her on every anniversary, Christmas, uh, birthday, or write her something. It may be something short, but, but you know, it's it's always something that's my love language. That's the way I I deal with it. Yeah. Oh, I forgot. That's Valentine's. I got her these animals that uh, that that listen to that old that old terrible classic rock music and twist and do this kind of stuff. You know. Ungodly stuff, but I, I you know, she likes it. <laughs> but you know, so you know, it's the the important thing is finding out and doing something, fi- figuring out what the husband likes, and really, if you, you the ladies will figure that out, it'd be more apt to try to do something for you. And some Jessica, some are dense. I'll, I'll, they are, they are. And sometimes you just have to flat out tell them. You know, I don't disagree with that. But, you know, you do it long enough, eventually it'll, it'll, it'll soak in. I think it's that way with, with a, a lot of people. But as my wife said, you know, you, you, don't, you don't give up. You keep trying. You just keep trying. Any other questions or comments? Anybody else? You sure? Absolutely sure. Okay, so now... It is time to find out what your spouse's love language is. Identify again their two primary love languages by remembering how they've been trying to love you. 
Do they crave to be with you? Do they give you many gifts? Do they speak positive to you often? They try to touch you often. They try to serve you or do things for you often. So again, you pick out the top two and find out which one of these two love languages seems to be the primary. Now add the third one that was almost a part of the top two, and you have your spouse's basic love language. And this is just, you know, it's pretty easy. And, and I suggest to you that uh, you get online and look for that particular uh, quiz that he talked about that might really help you to, to figure out, you know, the love languages. You know, all of this, anytime I read something like this, I come back to one simple thing. You know, everybody has got an idea on what works. Human relationships are hard. A man and a woman getting married and living together the rest of their life is hard. And so everybody tries to come up with a way of easing it, and it's no easy way of doing it. It is a battle all your life. It's just like serving God. You're going to fight all the way to the rapture of the church or to you. Someone carries you out in a coffin. It's a battle, but it's worth it all. The good times that you have in a relationship will outweigh the bad times by far. Believe me. Everybody's trying to make an easy way, but again, it just comes right down to it. I can write a book that says, Roberts is on how to stay married. Fight every day you get up. Not each other. <laughs> Fight for each other. The end. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Psalm 43, verse 4. We're going to talk about how to make it even better. Psalm 43, verse 4. This is a New King James Version. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and on the harp I will praise you, O God, my God. We're going to talk about building an altar unto the Lord. And this is, this is just... Something that every family, if you're going to make it work, if you're going to have good children, if you're going to be able to stay with your husband or wife, you're going to have to have an altar. It's just, it's just imperative. You have to. The altar is representative of our prayer life. And unlike in the Old Testament, because of the work of Jesus on the cross, we can now talk to God whenever we call out to Him. You don't have to go through all the rigmarole that they did in the Old Testament or in the Catholic Church, per se. You can just go right to him at any time. But before you can really tackle the family altar, it's essential that we have our own personal altar. We all need a place where we can talk to God, where we can meet face-to-face with him. What does the altar represent? And let's look at this. I remember there's a lot of messages that have been preached on the altar, and a lot of times the altar is taken out of churches in a physical place. And yes, you know, an altar can be whatever you, you make an altar out of. But it's imperative to have some place where you have an altar somewhere. And so it represents, a, a, it's, it's, the altar is a designed or designed for sacrifice. The altar represents the place where God is. The altar is a place of refuge. The altar represents a place where the priest intercedes. The altar represents a place where we can take our sorrows. The altar represents where we can talk to God. The altar represents a place of blessing. So how do we build an altar unto the Lord? Your priorities must be in the right place. God must be first if you're going to have an altar. Family then follows second. Your first ministry responsibility is to your family. That's your first ministry responsibility. Business, job, or career comes third. 
These are things that are vital in order to live in the material world, but they do not profit you in the scope of eternal life. Yes, you have to work. Yes, you have to have business. And, and it's, it's vital that you do that. You can't be without that. But this is not going to help you when it comes to your eternal life. Not at all. You can't build two kingdoms at the same time. Matthew 6.24 in the NIV says, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. It is impossible to build your kingdom and to build God's kingdom. God says that if you will be faithful to build his kingdom, then he will build yours. In Matthew 6.33, the NIV, it says, But seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. If you take the time to build God's kingdom, he will give you success in what you do. God blesses you as you build his kingdom. You'll have the favor of God as you build his kingdom. But you need a plan. In the construction business, it's called a blueprint. Jesus said no one builds a house without first counting the cost. In Luke 14, 28, New King James says, For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost whether he has enough to finish it? You need a solid foundation. If you don't have that, you don't build walls on unstable ground. In the long run, they'll simply crumble under the stress. You need solid walls. The nails have to be set in the right place and spaced the correct distance. There are things that are essential. Insulation, the right copper wire for electricity to flow through. The correct plumbing. Proper roofing to prevent leaks. Some want a good spiritual home, but they settle for cheap materials and cheap constructions. That's the reason people uh, fall away. I've seen untold amount of people that's walked through this church. I've sat and talked to them where they talk, they've made up their mind. They're going to serve God. They're going to do it this time. And within three weeks or four weeks, they're back out again doing the same thing over and over. It's because they don't get the proper foundation. They get cheap materials. If they just come to God, I preached on this Sunday night. If they just come to God because things are going bad in their life, they're not getting along with their husband or their wife, whatever it may be, that's cheap material. Somewhere along the line, you have to desire a right relationship with Jesus Christ somewhere along the line you have to fall in love with Jesus and if you fall in love with him it's that good material that you're building on your foundation is firm you got the right stuff in the in the in the building that you're building if you don't you're going to fall right back into it and that's what I think if there's anything that frustrates me it's the fact that people just simply cannot fall in love Jesus will never be a spare tire to this guy Jesus will never be someone he just uses when things are going bad. It's somebody that's with me when the bad times are here. It's somebody that walks beside me when the good times are here. I'm never going to let him go, and guess what? He's never going to let me go. And if I believe it that way, and if I stand on it that firmly, everything's going to be all right, and I'm going to make it all the way to the rapture. That's all we have to do. It's not that hard. We have to make that decision. So it's going to cost you something. Jesus said it's foolish to build something without first being aware of the cost. The cost is not what you say or what you are willing to do. God determines the cost. Jesus said that we must die to self and to take up our cross and follow him. Not every sacrifice is acceptable to God. Your altar has to be decorated with spiritual things. The holiest of holies is a picture of the items that adorn our altar. Incense or our prayers. Oil, the anointing of God's spirit. The veil of separation, indicating our inability as a man to approach a holy God except for His grace. 
What God desires to see in us is the fruit of the Spirit working in our lives. You need to use your altar. All of these items are in vain if we don't talk to God. When considering the criteria for a family altar, the following components are essential of it being a success. Number one, you have to have a family. At least one Bible, personal relationship with God, some knowledge of the doctrines and the convictions that are considered as truth by the parents, a sense of responsibility towards your children. Along with the elements, there must also be a great determination and prayer because Satan will vehemently oppose the family efforts to build an altar. Believe me, he will. Our family altar used to be the 91st Psalm before the kids went to school in the morning. And we would, we would go through the 91st Psalm, go through the 91st Psalm. Everything you need is in the 91st Psalm. That can be your family altar. Just, just, just read it, have the kids read it, you read it, get to the point where they can quote it. And, and go through it every day. Everything you need is right there. But you have to do it. Because I can remember, it was always when you tried to do that before everybody left in the morning, there was always something that came up. Always, you know, you ran out of time. Always something. Because the devil doesn't want you to do that because it works. It works. It prepares your children. It protects your children. It really works. It protects you as well. So you have to have this. And, you know, there are really many valid reasons for de- conducting family devotions. It brings the family closer to each other. It builds spiritual discipline. Creates an atmosphere of worship in the home. A testimony that God means something to the family. But the simplest and most complete reason for a family altar is that God has instructed us to teach His Word to our children. Deuteronomy 6 and 7, that ye shall teach them diligently to your children. Psalm 78 and 4, will not, we will not hide them from, from our children. God has assigned the primary responsibility of training children in his precepts to the, as a task of the parents, not the church, not the Sunday school. The primary task of teaching the children is the parents. The primary task of teaching the children is the parents. I have been blamed for kids backsliding. I am. I have been blamed. I don't know what they wanted me to do, live with them, but I've been blamed for it. Well, you know, if they'd had better this and them, and the thing is that I knew the parents, and I knew where the problem lay. Every Christian family, as a family, should call upon the name of the Lord. In today's society, there are many excuses that can be made for not doing this. Most of them fall into two categories. It's not convenient. We're afraid or ashamed to have a family prayers. And believe it, believe it or not, there are people that way. It might be true to some degree that a, a time set aside to gather the family together on a regular basis could be inconvenient. This problem can be overcome through earnest desire and a purposeful determination to have a family altar. It may require creativity as well as flexibility in finding a time to gather the family or if it is impossible to gather the entire family at one time, there's no reason not to bring together the members who are available. Just because not all of them can be there doesn't mean you can't get the ones that are there together. If being ashamed or embarrassed is a basis for us not having a family altar, let's consider the words of Jesus. In the NIV, Mark 8:38. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... 
The Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. Well, there's not any one structure that will work best for every home. There are several components that should be included in each family altar. Informal, yet reverent. Bible reading, prayer, worship, everyone included. It's important to note that the method of what we do is not nearly as important as the fact that there is a family altar. It's also important to realize that the altar is an acknowledgement that the family needs God's direction and His guidance. If nothing else, if nothing else, that should be. I, I was walking out of my office a while ago to come in here, and, and, and Sawyer followed me out, and he asked me, Are you going to pray, Pap? And that, that meant a lot to me, just hearing him say that. I was actually coming to preach, not to pray. I've already done the praying, but it's vital that he understood. That's, that's, that's a part of it. The family altar is basic. When we read Genesis 12:7, we find that the first thing that Abram did after leaving Haran and arriving in the land of Canaan was build an altar unto the Lord. This altar became the center of Abram's family life. It affected his thinking, his planning, his actions. It also directed his life towards God in an intimacy that was so deep and binding that God revealed to Abram the impending destruction of Sodom before the judgment fell. The entire history of Israel revolved around the altar which Abram began that day. When the altar was neglected and forgotten, captivity and sorrow came upon the nation. When the altar was rebuilt, blessing and prosperity was a result. Keep that in mind. Rebuilding the family altar is the 21st century will stem the tide of delinquency, raise a wall against the scourge of divorce, Daily prayer and Bible reading around the family altar will equip the parents with wisdom and it will anchor the children's faith in God. And that's what we want to do most, most of all. Questions or comments? Family altar. Stand with me. Why is it that people ever really stop and think about it? You and there's a lot of people that do this. I know. Uh, when you get your kids together, uh, and you have a family altar, Bible reading, whatever it is, before they go to school or before you leave for the day, why is it that you feel self-conscious? Why do you feel that way? But yet you do. Everybody in here could say that. If you've done this, you understand exactly what I'm saying. You feel self-conscious. Like, what can I say to make it better? Am I really worthy of doing this? Is this just something that should be done at church? But we do that. And that is, that is because of our fallen nature. It's because the devil reaches into that part of us, that self-consciousness that causes us to try to back down from something that is so needful. I don't care if you can only do it for 15 seconds. Read one verse of the, and do something. Do something with that child. Do something. Because that can make all the difference in the world for that child. If nothing else, I know that mom and dad is willing to take that time. You know, one of the things that I can remember, I can remember, and it wasn't a family altar, but I still, I, from the beginning all the way till now, in my mind, I can still see this. My grandfather, uh, my, 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 uh, my mother's uh, dad, when he used to stay at his house every night, they had a small house in his bedrooms in the back. I could see him kneeling down at his bed and praying. And I looked and always watch him. And, and, and just stand and watch him maybe 
10 minutes or 15 minutes before I do anything, he would say every night it never failed that he would kneel down and pray. And that still affected me. It affected me when I wasn't in church. I could see that image. It's still there. So if nothing else, if you can create that image in your children that mom and dad are praying before we go to school. Mom and dad are praying. That image may not remember what you said, but the image is there. And it can carry them. Let's raise your hands to the Lord right now together. Father, we thank you for your blessings, your goodness, your mercy. We bless and honor you, Jesus, for all that you are. Thank you, Lord, for our children. Thank you, Lord, for each and every one that is here. Bless them. God, allow your anointing to rest upon each and every one. Jesus, that you can touch us and heal us and move within us in such a great way. I ask now in Jesus' name, amen. Lord bless you.